So I wonder what your go-to source is for news. And if you've ever thought much about why you trust that source. Go back in the U.S. I'm going to try to use a distant example so that I'm not getting too close to home. Back in the U.S., most people are sharply divided between two news channels and a, and a person's preference for CNN or Fox News usually tells you a lot about their political commitments because each one is fairly uh, specifically tied to a political outlook. And it is actually those underlying commitments to the, the political agenda that usually determine people's choice of their news source. And, and perhaps unsurprisingly, it's very difficult to convince a follower of CNN that CNN could have said anything incorrect. And the same is true for followers of other news sources as well. And the, the reason it is so hard to convince someone that their news channel is wrong is because they are committed to the authority of that channel based on its principles it it has to be right it has to be because if it's wrong it means the other team is right and we can't have that and the point to to note is that people are loyal to their sources of news because they're committed to that authority of the source. They cannot turn away from their news channel because it's the only source they trust to uphold their vision for political progress. Now, I'm guessing that many of you already know where I'm going with this, don't you, LCPC? I've highlighted this commitment to the authority of news sources that drive people to be unwaveringly committed news channel and here we have in John 6 68 Peter saying to Jesus Lord to whom else maybe shall we go you have the words of eternal life which indicates for us how Jesus's disciples know they cannot abandon the the proper source of truth no matter how difficult the message is to hear and so of course we are considering some fundamental aspects of our foundations for knowing what is true we're, we're considering what it means to be committed to an authoritative source. And so, so really, I hope we can underscore some important issues from Andy's sermon last week about the interpretation, inerrancy, and implications of Scripture, and that we can help work those truths a little deeper into our souls and reaffirm our place to stand 
if we want to know and encounter God. And so the main point this morning is that our commitment must be to the Scriptures because the Scriptures take us to Christ. Our commitment must be to the Scriptures because the Scriptures take us to Christ. And we'll see that in three points. The authority, the alternatives, and the application. So first, the authority. So in, in this point, I want to I camp out on why Peter would say those words of verse 68. To whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's where I'm leading up to and want to center our reflection. So if you would, keep your Bibles open to John 6 as we dig in here. Because those of you who read closely or listened closely, you have a very pressing question, don't you? About even the first verse. Verse 61 starts, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And so you're asking, what is it? And that's a good question. And we need to look at some earlier sections of John 6 to find the answer. And so this passage, which really starts in verse 22, that that song read to us last Sunday evening, is called the, the Bread of Life Discourse because it is this famous sermon where Jesus refers to himself, as you likely guessed it, the Bread of Life. So I want to take a long run in terms of um, where we start, not in terms of length, I hope, uh, up to our focal verses for today and, and really quickly indicate some highlights of this bread of life discourse so that we have a sense of why the disciples called Jesus' words a, a hard saying. So, so let me summarize some things for you. So at the beginning of John 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people using just five loaves of bread and, and two fish. And then he miraculously walks on water to cross the sea to where we find him in these verses, starting in verse 22. And the, the same crowds that he fed at the beginning of the chapter gather to him again, and, and they want another miraculous feast, which is what prompts this famous phrase, I am the bread of life. Jesus sees that they are more interested in earthly gifts than in the heavenly giver, and he confronts them about it. So instead of pursuing food that perishes, he told them in verse 27 that they should pursue food that endures to eternal life, which only Christ can give. They they want to know then in verse 28 what they can do 
to get that food. And Jesus' response in verse 29 is that the only thing that they can do to get that food, resulting in eternal life, is believe in the one whom God sent. Namely, himself, the Son of God. Because as he spelled out in verse 35 and following, he is that food that gives eternal life. He is what they are seeking. He is the bread from heaven that will satisfy eternally. And we know from first verse 41 that Jesus' hearers began to grumble that he pointed to faith in himself as the divine person from heaven. What's striking is that then, as as now, people don't like it when you tell them they can't be good enough to earn God's favor. But that all they can do is trust in Jesus Christ as the way to God. So no less in first century Israel than in 21st century London did people want to congratulate themselves for being wonderful and want to dream that God is ever so proud of them for their goodness. And so, you know, in our day, the church growth gurus tell us we need to focus on this issue of helping people have better self-esteem if we want the church to do well. But I ask you, if you look here at John 6, 43 and 44, was that Jesus's approach? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So so take notice in this text, Jesus' tactic to grumbling is to point out that the reason that they are grumbling that Jesus is the only way to eternal life is because God the Father is not working faith in them. No one can come unless the Father draws him. Indicates that if you are not coming to Jesus, Father is not drawing. So Jesus doesn't think unbelievers have the right to be proud and arrogant about their unbelief, but that they should be convicted and afraid that the hardness of their heart has kept them from seeing the truth. And Jesus goes on from there to explain again that he is the only way to heaven and that we must eat of his flesh and drink of 
his blood if we are to enter the kingdom of God. And that brings us right into our sermon passage beginning in verse 60 and clarifies for us that the the hard saying that left this big group of disciples out of sorts was the message about Christ as the exclusive way to salvation and the fact that only those whom God effectually calls to faith will accept that message. And so then, just as now, when we talk about the biblical doctrine of predestination, people, including the followers of Jesus, find it a hard topic, and they also find it hard to insist on the exclusivity of Christ as the way to know God. Some things never change, right? And the need for Christ to save us, because God finds sinners revolting, if they are not united to Christ, and the truth that we even need God to give us faith because our hearts are so dead in sin, has always and will always bother the proud, sinful heart. The hard saying that left even the disciples moaning is that if you want to know God, moreover, if you want to be in a right relationship with God, you have to do so through Jesus Christ alone. You you cannot polish yourself up to be mildly acceptable to God and you cannot combine spiritualities and you cannot trust that God will look kindly on your best efforts. You have to have spirit-wrought trust in the Lord Jesus Christ if you want God to accept you. And Jesus knew that his disciples, which here includes a bigger group than the twelve apostles, as they will come to be known, found this message troubling. And so he asked and reasserted the point, if you'll read with me in verses 63 to 65, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that... I have spoken to you, our spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. 
And so I ask you, LCPC, did you notice that little phrase that Jesus used? This is why. This is why I said. Because it's very important. Jesus knows some of his very followers do not actually believe in him. And instead of, instead of sort of coddling them and trying to smoothly urge them along, he, he puts his finger right back on the hardest of issues and says, the reason I said that people only believe if God works in them, is if God works in them, is because I know that some of you don't believe. In other words, God hasn't worked in some of you. And perhaps unsurprisingly, from our point of view, many from this larger group of disciples turn away. And refuse to follow him anymore. But the, the 12 primary disciples remained. And yet still, Jesus wasn't ready to let them off easily. He says, do you want to go away as well? Peter's response to that question is where we will root the rest of our reflection and application this morning. His his response to Jesus' hard teaching about the exclusive way to salvation through faith in Him and the necessity of God's work in coming to faith and Jesus' blunt questioning about their commitment to follow Him To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So let's ponder that saying for a moment before we transition to make some application. Because I, I think Peter's words, to whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, are both a profound expression of faith and a deep expression of desperation. His words do not come across as if the difficulty of Christ's teaching has not registered with him. In some way, like it registered with those who abandoned Christ. His words also do not come across as somewhat foolishly over-enthusiastic, as, as sometimes Peter's words can in other passages. No, here it seems Peter recognizes the full weight of the difficulty of Christ's sermon and the full relevance of his 
of its truth. He, he does not say that, Lord, your uplifting words have impressed us. You know, Peter says, Lord, if you ask if we would leave because of your hard teaching, but we don't have anywhere else to go. No, no one else is the Holy One of God who has come to save us. And so no matter how hard this message is, we have trusted in you. Peter, who is still likely in the process of coming to understand what discipleship will really be like, does not claim to have complete understanding at this point. He he does, though, confess his settled commitment to Christ, even though he is still growing in his understanding of Christian faith. And that is the posture I want us to think about settled commitment to following the words of Christ. The authority Christ demonstrates is that his message is is exclusively able to lead to salvation. And that brings us to our second point, the alternatives. So, in the last point, we, we considered... Jesus' sermon on how He is the bread of life, the exclusive way to eternal life, and how despite His difficult teaching, Peter and the twelve disciples resolve to have settled commitment to the authority of Christ and His message. And so in this point, I want to think about how we are in a very similar position. We, too, here and now, are faced with the choice to trust the authority of Christ in his, and His words or to abandon Him for the more palatable messages of the world. We, like the disciples, do need to realize that the Christian gospel is a wonderful message, and yet it is still a difficult message. Not in terms of understanding it, but it is difficult at times to say to people you know and care about that you have offended the God of the universe with your sin. That can be difficult to say it can be difficult to say that unless we are reconciled to God he will fix his wrath upon us in eternity and it can be difficult to say Christ himself through his obedient life and sacrificial death is the only that's the word that bothers me only way to be reconciled with God. He is the bread of life 
And we can accept this message and the authority of Christ as He is presented to us in the Scripture. Or we can abandon Him to invent our own stories of self-salvation that soothe our self-esteem but get us nowhere closer to heaven. I think there are two main competitors that people default to use or discuss to replace the authority of Christ. At least I'm going to discuss two this morning. The the notion of, of a relative truth, it's true for me, and the, the myth of unquestionable science. It's a relative truth. You know, I wonder, I wonder how many of you, because I know it's all of you, have heard that nice little phrase, I just see it differently. Or maybe, well, according to your interpretation... And those little phrases are so popular today, are they not? It's almost like they're the chart to, well, I don't have to discuss this anymore. And what people mean by them is, despite how you've offered a presentation of facts about the Scripture and the Gospel and made a case for the truth of the Christian faith, They simply reject it for their own version of things. We we see this all around us, don't we, church family? Don't, Don't people act so proud of the fact that they are enlightened enough not to need to listen to God through a book I'm glad the Scripture inspires you, but I've found God elsewhere. They they seem to think that that is enlightened. Even religious people who, who claim to be Christians will put on the facade of, I'm glad that you have the Bible to help you find your path, but I just know I can find my way to God in other ways as well. And what are those other ways that people use to try to get to God? You know, because I would say very few, I'm not saying there's none, but very few people, especially who use these phrases, are committed to a, a different text You know, a different religious book that they think carries authority. Because what what most people mean when they say, I see things differently, is that they don't like what you've said. And that they are going to pretend, pretend that they have reasons for disagreeing with you. I see it differently usually means I'm going to listen to my feelings. And the sort of pop spirituality of the day is coded in language that makes it seem 
enlightened, but isn't anything more than an outright rejection of Scripture. If you try to supplement the Scripture and the authority of Jesus with your feelings, it is nothing more than the same abandonment of Christ that we see in the crowds of John 6. People also, though, want to use the notion of unquestionable science to reject the message of Scripture. So the this alternative to the authority of Christ usually says something like, science has disproved God and the Bible. I guess to me, you know, that just seems so immediately phony. After all, science only gets to investigate natural things. But God is supernatural. He's above nature. And it could not be otherwise. Science rests on running repeated experiments that we can watch. And I am unaware of a repeatable, observable test that can be run that disproves any fact given to us in the Scripture. And so we see that many appeals to science are nothing but a smokescreen. Designed to cover a rebellious rejection of what God says. It is an, it is an outright, it is a forthcoming stance on a, on a different authority. To say, I trust science and not the Bible. And it is in fact a rebellious stance to say science instead of the Bible because those of us who who trust the Bible are also able to accept legitimate conclusions of scientific investigation. We but we recognize that claims of people running tests are not unquestionable. Especially when they make claims about God and that our commitment to those things must and everything else must be subordinate to our commitment to Christ as presented in His Word. So in both of these alternatives, the popular spirituality and the overstated appeal to science, we simply see that unbelievers submit to a different authority, namely themselves. Spiritualists listen only to their feelings, and scientism listens only to their eyes. And really, I think we'd be able to boil down almost every alternative to a refusal to accept outside authority other than what I think inside me. No one can tell me what to believe, what is true. 
And now here's the way I, I want to apply that here, because I'm not just giving you reasons to think about people out there. Because I think even as Christians, this should give us pause to, to check ourselves how we think about the authority of Christ as presented to us now in the Word of God. Are we submissive to authority, even when it surpasses our understanding and comprehension? Or are we rebellious and committed to really only what we can feel or see? Christ presents the truth we need to know in Scripture, and the alternatives to his authority are to follow ourselves. That brings us to our final point, the application. So in the in the first point, we considered how Christ presented a challenging message of the gospel, and Peter and the disciples resigned to Christ's authority, no matter how difficult that message was. And then the second point, we thought about alternatives that people try to use for the authority of Christ as presented in the Word of God. And now in this point, I want to draw some application from all this. How do, how do we respond and what should our mindset be after this? And so first I want to I want to ask you if you're looking at John 6 and Peter's sentences there, did did you notice what Peter didn't say? And I'm sure the answer is what do you mean? Because when, when Jesus asked the twelve if they would leave too, Peter did not say, because listen, this started because the disciples are saying this is hard. And this is where I'm drawing this. The conversation is about the reaction to Jesus' hard teaching. And so Peter did not say, Jesus, we're not the ones who thought your teaching was difficult. He didn't say, we, we loved everything you said. And I think sometimes, in some parts of the church, it's pretended that no one struggles and, and no one has to work to be committed to and love biblical truth. But that's not really what Peter says here. And in fact, I, I take his response to be somewhat the contrary. Lord Jesus we will not leave even though we are struggling because we have nowhere else to go. You are the Savior. So the first application is commitment to Christ's authority as revealed in Scripture even when it is a hard saying. Because as is common even in the church today, if we think we have the right to discard biblical truth because we cannot square it with popular spirituality, cultural norms, or school textbooks, then we have not really submitted to Christ as our authority. And if we will not acknowledge Christ as king of our lives here, then neither is he our savior. 
And so in this culture where pluralism reigns, and Christianity is not liked very much, is our posture, is our default, is our fallback position that of Peter? Is our fallback position that of trust in the words of Christ? And next, I think we have to consider the relationship between Jesus' authority as the Savior and the authority of Scripture. Because if some of you, as some of you may have noticed, I've been collapsing those ideas together by referring to the authority of Christ as presented in the Scripture. And, and this is one way where, how I want to underline Andy's sermon from, from last week. Because I'm going to keep insisting that the authority of Christ and the authority of Scripture are the same. And, and I want to give you a reason now. The authority of Scripture in fact, comes from its author. Not every word that, not all words that are linked uh, in how they're formed are necessarily related, but author and authority seem obviously related. The difference between every other book and the Scripture is the difference between getting a note from a stranger and getting a note from the queen. Because with one, you can disregard and ignore it. Forget all about it if you choose. And the other demands your immediate attention. Because of who wrote it. Scripture is authoritative because God wrote it. And we do not know Christ apart from the Scripture. It is our soul, our only source of insight into who Christ is, what He has done for us, and what He requires of us. And so the, then the last thing that you are asking, I would think, is why should I submit to the authority of Christ as presented in the Scripture? What, what reason do I have to pledge my allegiance foremost to this ancient book as my foundational source for what I believe about God and the world? But, but you know the answer, don't you, LCPC? Boys and girls, if I, if I asked you why you follow and obey your parents, and I trust you do, you would say that they are the only adults that you fully trust to provide for you. Would you not? Nobody else has earned your allegiance as they have. And, and so for us, of all ages... Why do we trust, follow, and obey Jesus Christ? Because He lived and died for us. Because He is the only God 
in all religions who became fully human, not, not to satisfy some selfish desire, but so that he would have a human nature to perfectly obey the law and sacrifice his life on the cross to redeem you from your sins. We trust and follow the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible has earned our trust in Jesus Christ. Earned our trust in Jesus Christ. And therefore, to whom else would we go? To whom else would we go besides to the God who came down from heaven to rescue us from our sin? To, to whom else would we go besides the Savior who died so that you might live? And to whom else would we go besides the risen Lord who ascended into heaven to prepare an eternal home for you who would trust in him? To whom else would we go? He has the words of eternal life. And so let's trust in him now. Let's pray. Father God, it is an amazing thing that you made the world, you made a relationship with your people, And when your creatures went off the rails and wrecked this world, you sent your son and you nailed him to the cross to purchase rebels so that they would be your friends. What an amazing thing. Not only that you have redeemed us, but that you have spoken to us. And that you have given us a book to record the things that you have said. And we ask that you would write the words of this book in our heart. That as we have thought today about the authority of Christ as he is offered to us, in the scripture, you would help us be people who follow that authority, who submit ourselves to that authority, who, no matter our level of understanding, that we resign ourselves to Jesus Christ. He has the words of life. And so we pray now for all of those who are contrite, disheartened, broken, aware of their sin, and repentant that you would give them deep faith in Jesus and restore them that you would lift up their heads and give them full assurance that God is now for them if they are in Jesus Christ and so who can be against them and for those who are proud we pray that you would make them uncomfortable that you would help them to realize that they are rebels against the God of the universe. 
and that there is no satisfaction in following the path that they are on. And we pray that you would grant them this faith that Christ spoke of, that you would draw them effectually now to trust Jesus and wash away their sins in his blood. And as we seek to go into this world throughout this week, we ask that you would make us useful. That as we face so many challenges of people who do not like this chapter of the Bible and all of the other ones, that you would give us strength and courage to be committed to Jesus. And that is, even as we realize how weak and unable we are, that you would give us opportunities to love our family, friends, and neighbors and share with them the gospel of Christ. And we know that we are not persuasive. We know that we are not able. And that is why we ask that you would do the work so that as you work and you save sinners and as you build your people up in sanctification, we get the privilege, the right, and the opportunity to gather back here and say, that is our God at work. And we ask that you would do that in us now, even this week. Build us up and send us out. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.